Coming up on the Money Beat podcast, Jeremy Grantham is out of flavor again on Wall Street. But the last two times the investor was out of flavor, the market crashed both times. And also, the secretive hedge fund CEO behind the rise of Donald Trump. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Money Beat Podcast. Paul and Steve coming to you live on tape from New York City. I uh, hope you're having a good day. Grocer, are you having a good day? So far. You so are? Far, so yeah, far? Yeah. Uh, we're almost back on Dow 20,000. Yeah, watch. we are. We're going to have to actually rush out of the studio to get a- back as we As we sit here in the studio, the Dow's about 70 points away, so... Once again, our, our poor colleague Eric Holm is down there manning the desk by himself right, right now. Right, right. We're back at uh, DEFCON 1 for Dow 20,000. So as soon as we are done with this. Vacations are canceled. Vacations are canceled. Uh, well, lunches at least are canceled. <laughs> I don't know about vacations, but, but at least lunch. Bathroom breaks. Lunch is delayed. Bathroom breaks are, are totally out. Those are done. Forget that. Uh, <laughs> We are joined today by Greg Zuckerman. Greg, how are you? Hey, great to be here, guys. A uh, pair of interesting stories that we want to talk about with you. So we'll we'll hit one, and then we'll take a break, and we'll hit the other. Uh, first one, interesting. Look, you look at what's happened in the market since the election, and you look how good it's been for risk assets. And that isn't always good for the, the more value-minded investors in the universe, uh, one of them being Jeremy Grantham. Yeah, so it's been tough for value guys, um, both because prices have been sort of high at the high end when you look at P.E. ratios and such. Uh, it's hard to make an argument that things are attractive, but it's also tough for value guys because active managers in general have been struggling. It's just hard to beat the market when you're charging fees and you're you're a human um, and not a machine and not a quant. So the guys like Jeremy Grantham have been, uh, been di- having difficulty both for, for both ro- reasons. And investors are fleeing active managers in general, and they're fleeing from Jeremy Grantham. No, I mean, I think that was one of the interesting aspects of the story is it speaks to a lot of the trends that we've been seeing over the – not just since the election, over the last couple of years. Right, I right. mean – you, simply, you look at like this summer, bond yields hit their lowest point, I think, on record, you know, what, 1.37. And within yep. weeks, stocks are already hitting all-time highs. I mean, rarely do you see an environment where bonds and stocks are, you know, um, both um, <laughs> richly valued. Careen yeah. from one to the other. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and if you ask a guy like Grantham, he's not ready to say that we're in bubble territory. And this is a guy who's predicted bubbles in the past, um, before 2000 and the tech. Accurately. Yeah, point exactly. Right, right. He, he, they got really um, quite cautious in the late 1990s, and it cost them, his, his firm GMO, it cost them, investors left. Uh, once again, before 2007, I'm sorry, sorry before 2008, financial crash, crash uh, he was cautious, and, he, and his colleagues were cautious, and eventually their clients were rewarded. Um, but and he's not ready to say that we're in a bubble right now, and we're not really. When you look yeah. at evaluations and bubble kind of territories, you don't see things like people leveraging up and the excesses that usually come with bear, with bubble um, phenomenons. That all said, things are kind of expensive. Jeremy Grantham and his firm have been cautious. They've been holding way too much cash. They've been in things like uh, alternative strategies that haven't worked, emerging markets, etc., that have underperformed at least lately. And fl- the clients are fleeing. I mean, they've gone from about um, 120 plus billion dollars down to about 80, which is significant over the last uh, year and a half. 
No, I mean, it, it really is. I mean, it's been a hard environment for active managers, not just because of fees, but because when the Fed is pumping money and interest rates are so low, it, it is hard to really, you know, everything moves yeah. in tandem. Well, Correlations and, are so tied together. And, you know, I mean, you talk about the money that's flowed out of the funds, and, and that, that might go over some people's head. Not that it, people don't understand what the money means, but, I mean, you might just think, oh, well, he has you know less funds in, in, in his portfolios under management, but they've actually had to lay people off as well, right? Yeah, and you can make an argument they probably should do, should do more of it because they've cut about 10% of their workforce, um, but they're still not at the levels where they were the last time they managed just a $80 billion. So there is some concern out there that there's more pain to come. I mean, you do have to keep in mind that, again, he was right in the past when he was antici- when he anticipated um, slowdowns in the market. You wonder if this is a sign that we should be cautious as well. If a guy like Jeremy Grantham um, is nervous about the market, maybe we should be as well. Well, yeah, that was one of my questions. I mean, do, is anyone saying that this is... Uh, you know, one of those contrarian indicators, right? I mean, you talk about the, the way his fund was viewed before the last two bubbles. You talk about the the crashes that happened. I mean, is this is this a repeat of that? I mean, look, it's impossible to predict the future, but no, but this it, is what it I mean, lines up that. This way was a right conversation now. we were having yesterday in the office when we, you know about this story. Yeah. It was whether this was a contrary indicator. Yeah, listen, guys like Jeremy Grantham look bad in these kinds of markets. Um, when uh, prices are are richly valued, markets, in, as you, as you suggested, both stocks and and bonds, you're going to expect a guy like Jeremy Grantham to underperform. Uh, that all said, the backdrop for me is how much harder it is just for active managers in general. Um, when you're charging these kind of fees, when interest rates are this low, um, it's just hard to outperform. So it's another reminder of the difficulty for for active managers in general. Yeah, and it. it- it's not that they're actually losing their investors' money. No. It's just that they're not making yeah. nearly as yeah. much as And a few of their funds way. have done okay, right, um, right. margin markets and such. But, you know, it's all opportunity costs. Why be in a manager that's... Right. Um, so then how do they respond to this? Well, they're the least likely to actually respond and, and, and change. Um, they've talked. It's interesting. They've talked. Um, Jeremy has talked in his writings about shifting their cycle. So they're, they're all about reversion to the mean. And they look at markets in seven-year cycles, and they see markets as always returning. And there's a pattern there, and there's a reversion. He's talked in his writings about maybe instead of a seven-year cycle, maybe it's a, we, should, we should be thinking about markets as 20-year cycles. And if you, mm. and if you do that then you actually have to reallocate and put more money into stocks. Um, in other words, things won't revert um, right away. It takes a little longer. It takes much longer for them to revert. That said, he's just sort of pondered it. The market, the firm itself has not changed the way it goes doing the business. And as you guys probably know, and, and we know when you talk to people over there, they're the least um, likely to kind of change who they are. They're a little bit older, a little bit more staid and even boring, um, not necessarily using that as a criticism. Um, they are kind of a slow-paced and very thoughtful and analytical. And, yeah, they're going to stick to uh, what they do. And, and if anything, they're, they're kind of more proud of, of, of what, they, what they're about and that they don't change um, just because the market's uh, get, inflicting them some, some pain. What, what sort of, you know, in the past, there's sort of like, it was an obviously, an, you know, an end game. I mean, like you had the financial crisis, you could see that sort of the, the housing bubble, tech stocks were really bubbleous. 
How long does he think this is going to, like, you know, this current period of the market continuing to go up um, is going to continue? Or, you know, where's the payoff, I guess? Right. So, th- so when you're a client, you want to know that kind of thing. When you're a manager, it's hard to pinpoint a catalyst, especially yeah. when you're a value guy. You, all you know is that things are a little bit too expensive here. You have no clue what the catalyst will be. When you, when you talk to other kind of managers, like a growth kind of manager um, and more active, opportunistic type investor, they'll list you a whole bunch of things of, of, of catalysts, potential catalysts. Oh, yeah, well, maybe if interest rates go a little bit higher. And that's the thing some people talk about. What's the key level for interest rates? Um, you get a little more growth in the economy, great, but the price is already expensive in the markets. And if you get interest rates a little higher, then it undercuts stock prices. People can, people can think about earnings. People talk about um, or maybe the maybe the Congress won't be as compliant as um, as pre, uh, as new President uh, Trump, President elect Trump um, expects. Maybe they won't get the infrastructure. You can go through a list of things that will that could undercut these prices at this as level. But when you talk to a Jeremy Grantham or Ben, ben Inker, um, his his um, colleague there, they're they're <laughs> they're not going to um, um, try to guess what the catalyst would be to bring markets down. Have they? Got, is there a letter come out yet this year? They had one not yet. There's one late last year, which people are still yeah. kind of going through and pondering. Yeah. Take a break. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's take a break. Uh, we have an important message for you. We will come back right after this. More with the Wall Street Journal's Gregory Zuckerman. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. Hi, this is Paul Gigo, host of the Potomac Watch podcast. Join me and my colleagues every week as we dissect all of the latest happenings in Washington. Check us out at wsj.com slash podcasts and become a subscriber on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and the Google Play Music app. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. Yeah, if you want, you can ask the question, Grocer. Yeah, yeah. We're not on. Well, we're not on the air, but you know, the the, the listeners won't get to hear it. <laughs> um, I, no, I, the one question is: we we saw with a lot of strategists, investors. You've seen this with the markets, like you know, the election caused a, a you know a pretty sizable switch in and the outlook on the U.S. economy and U.S. stocks. Um, what did what did, did has, has, have Jeremy Grantham and any of them commented on that changing their view and their outlook in any way? So he hasn't come out and talked about the election per yeah. se after ever it's done. The value guys will say, they'll grant you that if you get tax cuts, um, earnings will improve. And maybe some of these other steps too, you can go down the list, um, repatriation of assets, um, there's animal spirits people talking about. If you can get companies spending again and not savings, that stuff will be good. But they'll they'll uh, respond by pointing to prices. A lot of that already is priced in. They no. would argue. Yeah. No, I mean like we we talked about this on our year end uh, you know show that, that that essentially, if you look at the valuations currently, earnings. I mean. Prices have been rising faster than earnings, and if earnings are really going to, you know, and they're right. picking up now, but if they're going to carry the day, they're going to have to be pretty yeah. robust. 
Uh, I want to welcome you back to the Money Beat podcast. Paul Vini, Stephen Grosser, and Greg Z- Gregory Zuckerman in the studio today. Uh, for more great podcasts, you can check us out at slash podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at WSJ Podcasts. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, your Google Play Music app. And before we switch gears, Greg, I wanted to point out one thing that people may not people may not always be aware of just how smart some people in this room are. And I'm not even talking about Greg, and I'm certainly not talking about me. So this morning, Dietrich says, hey, guess how much Goldman Sachs has risen since the election? Mm. And, and you know, who the hell knows? You know, I mean, we know generally, but, you know, we know it's been up a lot. You know, Grosser says, ah, 34%. Bang. Mm. Bang, wow. Stephen Grosser. This is just the kind of knowledge and how plugged in this man is every single day in the markets. Ask him a question. He's, oh, yeah, 34%. You are in the wrong profession, my friend. And he was dead on his 34 it's just, it, You get lucky every once in a while. There you go. It was very impressed. I just I was I'm, a little bit educated. I, I mean, I, I knew that Goldman had finished a year around 31%, and I knew, like, you know, bank stocks had gone up a little bit in the go. first week. So. It was, a, it was a stab. It's a little bit of educated stuff. I, I was I was impressed. I was impressed. And I think it's just a, a an That's a huge number, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. No Jeez. kidding, right? Wow. This is what happens when you have to sit around every day watching Dow <laughs> twenty thousand, and gold yeah. is the main driving force behind it. Huh. Oh my God! Wait, Dow twenty. Speaking of Dow twenty thousand, let me uh, let, let's let's update the listeners. Who are now you know listening to this long after the fact of whatever we're taping? But you know, know. anyhow, whatever. Where is the the Dow? Oh my God, I can't find it. That's painful. All right. Well, anyhow, we're on Dow twenty thousand. Watch, folks. Uh, let's switch gears. You just sort of bit. just killed the whole notion of us being on top of the market. Right I know. There. We can't even get the Dow and the Dow Jones. Yeah. We work Why here. Is the, I know. It's ridiculous. Yeah, it's done okay today. So moving on. Moving yeah. on. All right. Let's switch gears a little bit because uh, Greg, you took part in another story, and I think a lot of people. It, it's funny because you were saying to us before we came on the air here, you were saying, yeah, I don't – this story was not – not besmirching the story, but to you a lot of this was kind of well-known. Uh, when I read it, I, a lot of it was not well-known to me, and I thought it was actually a really fascinating story. And it was uh, – it was. Uh, I want to get all the the writers. It was you, Keech Hagee, Scott Patterson, and Rebecca Bauhaus who wrote a story about the Mercers, a father and son team, who daughter. are – Daughter. Daughter. Rebecca Mercer, sorry. Uh, Renaissance Technologies is the hedge fund, and a lot of people probably have not heard that. This is a hedge fund that was actually extremely instrumental, and I think this is what surprises people, Greg, uh, in in helping Donald Trump win the election. Yeah, well, um, and I didn't mean to imply that um, what we wrote um, wasn't news. Uh, I was sort right, of exactly. just suggesting yeah. that this guy, Robert Mercer, people, it's been out there that he has been a supporter of Trump. So what we tried to do is dig into why he became so important and how important he really became. So he's a guy who helps run this hedge fund called uh, Renaissance Technologies, which arguably is the most successful hedge fund in history. And the guy who founded it, Jim Simons, arguably is the greatest investor in history, bar none. We're talking Buffett. We're talking Stevie Cohen. We're talking anybody. And what they do is they use computers and algorithms and formulas and signals, as they call them, and they've outperformed for years. So and they were on the forefront of this long before. Exactly. They started in the 80s, and they've racked up remarkable gains. Um, and they're very, very secretive, and they don't tell anybody anything. And guys like me have a tough time writing about them as a result. Um, <laughs> So the guy who ran the firm, Jim Simons, has retired, and the two key CEO, 
the two co-CEOs include this guy, Robert Mercer. And he's a fascinating guy who we wrote about. And he's a data guy. And he looked at the data. He's a right-leaning uh, individual. And he looked at the data uh, several years ago when he had people, he commissioned people, and he talked to other people, and he got uh, his figures of his own. And he came to the conclusion that mainstream GOP politicians were not going to win this coming election. And at first, he got behind Ted Cruz. You can argue whether he's mainstream or not. Uh, but then he shifted gears and really got behind Donald Trump. And what we wrote about is the role, surprising role he's played. I mean, he's almost a, um, um, the man behind Donald Trump in some ways, a, a, a kingmaker, in that uh, two of his colleagues, he, he and his daughter, who worked together in, in the political realm, uh, helped place Steve Bannon and Kellyanne Conway within the Trump administration. Um, they did financing. They've given advice. They've done all kinds of things behind the scenes to help Donald Trump. So um, now that the election's over, he's not only um, atop Wall Street, he's a king in the political realm as well, this guy Robert Mercer. I mean, he, you know, he's obviously right-leaning, but why, why he – I mean, in part of the piece you talk about wanting this outsider, someone who's going to shake up. But that also seemed like his personal also perspective was he wanted someone who was going to be able to shake up the sort of establishment and all that. Did you get any sense of what – you know, why that was? It's a good question. So what we tried to do is um, give a suggestion along the way in the story, and he's a guy who's always been in some ways an outsider. He um, had some early experience working in a government lab, wasn't thrilled with how he was treated, how his innovations were kind of ignored, um, developed this jaundiced view of government as a result. He went on to work for IBM. He had an approach uh, to speech recognition, which was different than others. Everyone was saying, oh, you got to use linguistics when it comes to speech recognition. He said, now let's look at formulas and patterns and went on to do investing. And you could make the same argument. Everybody, you know, deifies Buffett and Pierre. Lynch and, you know, oh, I'm at the supermarket and looks like everyone's buying this new toothpaste, so I'm going to buy the stock. They go the complete opposite way by ignoring human emotions and um, focusing on patterns and different signals, as they call it. And he's done that in some ways in the political realm as well, again, by using data and ignoring the elites and the establishment and undercutting them. So this uh, man who runs an incredibly secretive, incredibly successful hedge fund gets behind a man who is setting himself up as the people's candidate, as the, as the rebel from the outside. Uh, what should we expect? What, what should we expect of this, this um, pairing? So they, um, the Mercers, and that's Robert Mercer and his daughter Rebecca, who again work hand in hand when it comes to um, politics and, and ideology, they are really anti-establishment. I'm talking GOP and uh, Democratic establishment, and they're going to continue to push, is my understanding, um, Trump to to um, uh, take on the so-called elites. And some of the issues that we're seeing from Donald Trump are really important to the Mercers. Uh, they worries about immigration. Um, worries about the future of the middle class, trade issues. You can argue whether or not um, they'll have an impact, whether or not one should take on these kinds of issues. But when you see the things that Donald Trump has talked about on the campaign trail and now he's president-elect, they reflect some of the views of, of both Mercers. So I continue – I see them continuing to push. But also our understanding is that they're going to push uh, – the Mercers are – to help the GOP gain more – uh, gain, put, uh, create more gains within Congress. Uh, so in 2018, they're going to be important. And Kelly, Kelly, Kellyanne Conway said as much in our story. 
You know, I think it's it's really interesting because when Bannon and Kellyanne Conway came on board Trump's campaign, you saw the change. I mean, you, you really you saw did. a change in, yeah. in, in how they like they them operated. or not. But you see, the like impact. them or not, but they did. But I'm wondering. A big part of Trump's appeal was that he's not owned by anybody. He didn't need anybody's money. He had no backing. He was doing it on his own. He's doing it for the people. And and now we have this story about, you know, an incredibly successful, incredibly secretive hedge fund that, that was behind him. Does that undercut some of his populist appeal? You could make that argument. You could also make the argument that Trump's a wealthy guy. It's not clear how wealthy he is. Um, <laughs> that's open to There's debate. been lawsuits about that. Yes, <laughs> and, and speculation and such. And we'll, Depends on we, his mood, we, apparently. We never know. <laughs> right? You said as um, much. But yeah. he's a wealthy guy, and you could argue that he's less beholden to people like Robert Mercer and Rebecca, Rebecca Mercer. And it's not clear what they want. And readers have sort of reached out to me and said, good story, but what do they actually want? And it's a that's great question. That's what was my yeah. next question. And it's not clear to us either because unlike um, some other backers, let's say um, Koch brothers or other types of people who have real agendas and you can see what the agendas are and you can agree with them or not agree with, um, the Mercers, again, they talk vaguely about immigration and trade policy and things like that, but um, it's not clear what's in it for them. These guys, I mean, Robert Mercer is probably a billionaire. Um, he doesn't need anything from Donald Trump and the government right now. Um, it's also weird that it's, he sort of emerged um, in recent years as politically minded. It's not like the guy's been volunteering and canvassing and, and been, been active all these years. I mean, it really was Obama winning the second term that seemed to have changed him in some ways. Um, and he got frustrated at the direction of the company of, of, of the future of the of the country. The irony is that. The guy I mentioned, Jim Simons, who started his firm, is a huge Democrat, yeah. as is another guy we didn't mention in the story who's one of the founders of the firm, uh, Henry Laufer. So it's a fascinating firm. So people within the firm, and they're very um, – they're, they're, they're watched carefully on Wall Street just because they're at the forefront of this quantitative approach to investing. People that we've talked to and that our sourcing tells us um, within the firm are not comfortable with this election and Robert Mercer's prominence just because they like to be under the radar screen mm-hmm. and, and they're secretive and they don't like anybody talking about them and focusing on them. And Robert Mercer, everyone says he's just a brilliant individual. So he probably knew this was coming. So it's interesting that he cared that much about this election that he would risk people being unhappy within, within his own firm. No, I, I think it's – I mean, I do think it's interesting how the populism that, you know, we've seen talked about, we've seen sort of sweep the world, although it's taken different, you know, forms, meets with, you know, the new administration. It is fascinating. I mean, I wrote a separate story about how much wealth these people have yeah. that are joining the administration and the tax benefits uh, they're going to accrue to them. Um, and it is fascinating to see billionaires or, or people that are very quite wealthy embracing a populist stance. You could argue that people like Robert Mercer and, and others care that much about the country and the middle class that they are willing to go into the administration and, and in some cases, or support the administration because they're worried about the future. You could also argue that they just want power and populism was the way to – um, gain power, and the, those that voted for them um, might be disappointed. So we'll see what happens. One question I have, and you point out, he does not like the Clintons. Yes, he loathes called, them. Yeah, yes. called Bill Clinton, I think, a crook. Mm-hmm. Um, he was. You, you mentioned this earlier in the podcast, and it's in the story. The Obama's reelection in 2012 was a key point in him getting involved. What? 
about the sort of Clintons, Obama, and the Democratic policies, uh, you know, sort of drove him to, um, you know, the, this point. Listen, I don't think he's unlike many who uh, on the right have this visceral hatred, literally hatred, and you and I, we've all probably talked to these people, um, hatred of the Clintons and distrust of the Clintons. It's not dissimilar from the hatred that people on the left have uh, for Donald Trump. And it's just a sign of this polarization of, of how polarized our society is. And, and, and it's, it's, to me, as more of a moderate, it's a little uh, disconcerting. But um, yeah, they, they, the Mercers share this um, utter um, distrust of the Clintons. They think they're crooks. They, um, the Mercers think that they are liars and wanted anything uh, beyond um, their candidate. They weren't really about Trump. They weren't really about Cruz. They were about beating Hillary and, up and, and unsettling the, the elites and, and, and hurting them. Yeah, and it is also interesting, too, because they were behind Cruz until very late in the, the sort of election cycle, I mean, the primary cycle. Yeah, well, they've been influenced by Steve Bannon. And yeah. when Bannon switched, then, then the Mercer switched as well. Yeah. Well, in uh, just about a little more than a week or so, we'll start getting a taste of the people's revolt. So we'll find out exactly what. We'll get all the answers. We'll start becoming clearer. Greg Zuckerman, thank you very much. Great, Great to stuff, be here, man. guys. Uh, everyone, thank you for listening. As always, we appreciate it. And we'll catch up with you very soon. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously.